once again with the very young Gary Steingart, who is uh, most no. recently the author of Super Sad True Love Story. Gary, how are you doing and how young hey, do you feel? Good to see you, Ed. Um, I'm feeling kind of old, you know. Old? Uh, 38 I just turned. 38. Yeah. But I understand that Wired puts you on a really notorious list, the top 20 writers we need to throw into a cryogenic chamber before they turn 40. Isn't that a bit, that's a bit ageist? Is that, that taken away from your work? so uh, ageist, you know. Yeah. I, they keep pigeonholing me into this, uh, there's not even room for a pigeon in this hole. No. It's like, it's too much, you I'm, know? I'm wondering if you had to provide a birth certificate to the vigorous Wired fact-checking team, just it, to make sure that you were. It was terrible because it revealed that I was born in Kenya and that created a whole well, it was a debacle, yeah, so I'm being deported soon. And uh, you and know. all those protesters are going to show up at your readings as well. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that would be nice, and if somebody could cover that, yeah. we'd be in... Uh, I know. I'm mm. telling you, the free birth movement in relation to literature is just phenomenal. <laughs> Let's go into the book. I wanted to, first of all, talk about the two most explicit literary references in the book. Okay. You know, you've got Kundera's Unbearable Lightness of Being, which is kind of a mimesis moment. Uh, and then you also have, more vigorously, Chekhov's Three Lives, uh, Loptev is frequently name-checked by Lenny. Uh, now I should point out some similarities. Loptev, ugly guy who clings to books as a way of existing. Uh, the Loptev family also suffers from chronic debt. Uh, and there's also the president in this book is named after the conductor in that story, which made me realize, well, how much of the structure or the, the framework of Three Lives did you pilfer from this book, and was it changed considerably over revision. I mean, did you, you did you rely on Three Lives as a sort of uh, big kickstart here at all? Or? The Chekhov story, the Chekhov novella yeah, was... Yeah, the novella, Three Lives. The Chekhov novella was a huge inspiration, but he, this book is, you know, so I try not to use my imagination too much when I write because it's, it's, it's of limited use. So a lot of it is just trolling for good material from the masters. And um, Chekhov is as good as any because he loves his characters. And when I read uh, his novella, I thought, oh, my God, uh, finally, this is ugly man fiction I can really sink my teeth into. Yeah. Uh, I, when you were saying that, I, I thought you were about to say, and isn't the similarity that you yourself are unattractive? <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't, you didn't go there. Uh, thank you. Well, they're trying to place you in a cryogenic chamber, so. They're trying to, yes, yeah. yes, to, to, to preserve my, my punam. Um, uh, absolutely. And, you know, and I'm not a great political writer, but Kundera is somebody who, where the political and the erotic coexist in such close proximity, it's fairly caliente, uh, you know. Yes. I would say even muy caliente. And, and you know, uh, growing up with Kundera, it was so interesting because I was such a small, young nerd coming into one's sexuality and at the same time coming into a love of literature. And when you have someone like Kundera, when you drop Kundera on your own ass and read him, it's, it's, an, it's a sublime experience. I don't know how it would, well it would work right now, as, as a you know, as we've already described, as a 38-year-old man about to be placed into a cryogenic holding tank. Yeah, exactly. Well, I wanted to also point out that you are very geographic with your description of Lenny's face, and also Grace later on. I mean, Lenny describes his Ohio-based bald spot, and to my mind, this recalled Martin Amos's John Self, and I'm wondering if this ah. is an homage or a sort of riff on what he did? Or? That's interesting. I didn't think of that at all. Yeah. Um, it's true. Uh, but, you know, a, a lot of my characters have ge geographic descriptions. Misha Weinberg, the the hero of the narrator of uh, Absurdistan, was also in, obsessed with each fold of his rather large body. Um, so all my characters have this kind of obsession. I do teach Martin Amos' money at Columbia in my class called The Hysterical Male. 
where I have many hysterical men such as Amos and, and their protagonists who are also out of their mind, incredibly self-centered and self-obsessed. Yeah. Now, is Weinberg the guy, the fat guy who gets ripped away by the American Restoration Authority? Because he doesn't have a name. That's true. I, I, I thought about that. He doesn't have a name. He, he fits the description to a T. Yeah. I don't know. It's for readers to decide. Aha. Uh -huh. well, you, you considered that. Uh, of course. But at what point did you sort of shy away from that? For that? I never put in the name Weinberg, yeah. you know, because I thought, oh, God, here I go again. I had Steinfarb in the previous book, you yeah. know. It's like how much of it is just me massaging my own ego by saying, look, it's all related. Yeah. Uh, my oeuvre, my oeuvre <laughs> runs deep. So, so cross-referencing doesn't really appeal to you? It does sometimes. Uh, you know, under, under what circumstances? Uh, writing is such a boring activity. You're sitting, you're, well, for me, you're lying in bed. You know, your dachshund lapping at your feet. It's, it's, it's so quiet. Yeah. I, the, last, the first thing I want to do is make myself laugh. Yeah. The last thing I want to do is make myself cry. Somewhere in the middle, I find a happy medium where I chortle and sniffle a little bit. But you're taking on a dystopic environment. Certainly, you've set yourself up to cry. Yes, and I remember part of this book was written when I was in uh, at the American Academy in Berlin, which is based in Wannsee, the little town where the final solution was signed. Yeah. Uh, that was so depressing that, in fact, everything written there had to go. It was just too depressing. Wow, too depressing. Did you find that Berlin was a better vantage point with which to observe or at least kind of get a baseline emotion with which to rethink, perhaps, when you were back in home camp? It was too much baseline emotion. I, I was... It was just, I, I, I let the humor go. Yeah. Germany's not known for its humor. Yeah. Not a funny country. Funny, funny country? Not really. The stand-up comic is a recent innovation there in the last 20 years. Yes, it's yeah. a very physical humor, you know, they're yeah. like, uh, oh, my door got stuck in the Trabant. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you're tackling something that is a decidedly unfunny subject, so... Illiteracy? That's pretty funny. <laughs> May-December romance is kind of cute. Well, that is, but on the other hand, you're dealing with an illiterate nation that has become completely complicit with a fascist American state. Uh, it's quite gloomy. Fish, yeah. you know, we're yeah. not completely there. Yeah, no, I mean, being in Germany was very nice in terms of developing a, a fascist uh, country. Uh, you have to be close to the origins of fascism to really taste it and smell it. and boy, take. Boy, did I hit the Holocaust memorials. They couldn't pry me away. They were like, ah, Steingart's here again. To yeah. Dr. Park... Eunice's father shifts from a life of fundamentalism, conformity with Reverend Cho, and then later becomes more of, I suppose, a mainstream Christian helping out David and the low in net worth income individuals, the poor, yeah. in this. Um, LNWIs. Yeah, sure. But what's interesting is, is we don't really have an explanation for that transition. And I'm curious if you had an explanation in the previous draft in, in some capacity. He no. just kind of shifts like that. I think he's always had it in him to be, you know, this is the, the complexity of a character like that, is that, and, and, and I think Eunice mentions how he helps out the Mexicans in his community in, in, in Southern California. I think, you know, one can be both uh, an incredibly generous human being to others and a complete tyrant in the home. And, and that's Dr. Park to me. You know, this is the kind of strange... And I think of so many people, I was reading about Stalin recently and how he loved his daughter. You know, he was just all over his daughter. Could, um, long, long, long. Did you get a nice report card, sweetie? I'm going to go kill some Ukrainians now. You know, it, yeah. was, uh, it was that kind of bizarre 
uh, duality that I think a lot of us have. Or Hitler being a dog lover. That oh, kind yeah, of and thing. a nice vegetarian, too. Yeah, you know. absolutely. So Dr. Park, to me, there's, you know, this isn't Dr. Park's story. It's, 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 it's Eunice's story. Uh, but he does have that, I think, capacity to be both incredibly cruel to the one that he's supposed to love and incredibly uh, solicitous to those people who are not related to him. Yeah. There's the description of kissing, where Lenny is just describing kissing just about every aspect of Eunice in that one early moment. Oh, you're uh, that. And, and this capacity for change that we're describing in Dr. Park, uh, were these moments of optimism flourishing in a rather nightmarish environment a way for you to sort of tap more of this, what we're talking about here, this... Well, you know, look, my, between the light and the dark. my parents and grandparents grew up in Stalin's Russia. Um, did they have fun? Yeah. Some of it was not, it was not all, you know, it, there were moments of great optimism, moments of great, um, of, of being removed from, from even from those omnipresent political system. Uh, human beings are naturally resilient. Otherwise, we would have died as a, as a race a long time ago. Yeah. Um, we want things to be, to work out. Uh, and I think Lenny and Eunice, to me this is really their story, is about how these two people can fall in love in a society that will not allow it to happen. Yeah. You know, uh, if anything, the, 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 one of the things that really, as a child growing up, one of the books that mattered so much to me was uh, 1984. Uh, and I remember that book so well. I don't remember the Brave New World, I don't remember the characters, I remember the ideas behind Brave New World, but I remember 1984 so well. Because Julia and, and Winston, their love affair was so doomed, and yet I so much wanted for them to survive. There's uh. that final scene in the book when they get back yeah. together and they, they've betrayed each other ten times over. Uh, and they say that, and then, and then Julia says at the end, well, brother, um, maybe we'll meet again. And, yeah. and Winston says, yes, yes, we will. And I thought, oh, even though they're about to shoot Winston, it's still sweet. Maybe it'll work out. So did you have like a diet of dystopian literature where you were looking for the positive moments here? Well, my whole like life's that? been a diet of dystopian literature and dystopia, you know, in general. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, um, I love dystopia. I wanted to actually ask you about the rather bizarre patriarchy that's in this book. It's a double-edged sword. On one hand, you've got Lenny seeking what he styles an ersatz dad with Joshi, his Joshi. boss, who, oddly enough, is very Benjamin Button-like. Uh, you also have the Global Teens tips suggesting, perhaps with a nod to Christopher Hitchens' infamous essay, that women should, not, should laugh at men's jokes and not offer jokes of their own. The book opens with Nettie Fine, a sort of surrogate mother, yeah. uh, who I presume is named after a walk-on character from The Nanny. I don't know. I don't know. I never heard of that. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, I just love the name. Yeah, Nettie. It's exactly the same. Actually, maybe what influenced me was, uh, you know, when I have nasal troubles, I use this thing called the Nettie Pot, Nettie ah. Potty or something okay. like that. Okay. You, you, you snort water up your nose or whatever, yeah. which, I, which is so calming to me that maybe Nettie Fine was about that. And she's fine. Yeah. But then also continuing this patriarchy, matriarchy theme, you also have Eunice basically mothering Lenny. I mean, right. teaching him how to brush his teeth, uh, teaching him how to, you know, what to wear. Uh, and I'm curious about why you have sort of this duplicity here to some degree. And, and on one hand, you have Lenny seeking this patriarchy, but you're all, you also seem to be commenting upon female subjugation to some degree. How, how did this come about? It's all very complex. I mean, I think all my characters from the very, you know, the Russian debutant's hand job, my first book, uh, Vladimir Gershkin, is also in search of a, of a father, you know. Uh, his parents don't quite do the job. In my second book, Misha Weinberg, also terribly in search of you know, trying to break away from his father, trying to break away from what he perceives as the patriarchy, even though he beats up his own manservant. And in this book, you know, uh, Lenny's desperate for somebody other than the, the janitor who is oh so mortal, you know, and who sort of 
uh, reinforces his idea of mortality. So he desperately needs somebody to find it, even though Eunice is so much younger than him. In a way, she's, she, she knows who she is, and, and she's ready to inflict that upon anyone who stands in her way. And Lenny will fall right into that trap the same way he does with Joshi. In some ways, when he's sitting there and he sees Joshi and, and Eunice talking to each other, it's wonderful because they're, they're really... He's the young kid there, squirming in his seat. Um, the book is interesting in the sense that uh, these days women are much more successful than men, better educated. They go to college more often. You know, um, they uh, they read more. Frankly, no, men don't read anymore. Um, they're getting more degrees than men. They're getting much. You know, they have more degrees than a thermometer at this yeah. point, and they're. I love that. You know, and the book doesn't. You know, the book divides the two major professions in America of the future into credit and retail. And men have credit, they create the credit, and women run the retail. And Lenny sort of debates which one is more important and comes to the conclusion that retail requires more intelligence than, than credit. Why not have women run credit and men stuck in retail jobs? Men can't sell, men have no empathy. They, they, can't, they can't convince others to, to buy a, a, any piece of cloth. I've never bought a piece of cloth from a, from a man before. It takes two or three women, you know, hugging me, touching me to make me buy even even a pair of shorts. But then they're working in retail wearing onion skin jeans, which is essentially your answer to transparent aluminum, although considerably more libidinous. Yes, very libidinous, yes, yes. No, there's a wonderful pornographic component to this book because we've all been pornographied to, you know, there's kids of very young age already talking about all kinds of uh, various sex that they've seen on the, you know, on their apparat, the device that they use. Uh, so it's a completely sexualized society, and sexualization, I think, hits upon women more than men, even in this, even in this futuristic world where, where women, theoretically, should have the power, yeah. but they still don't. But also, aside from the onion skin jeans, you also have nippleless bras. Your fashion innovations in this are, are all uh, decidedly sexual. The only real option are ancient t-shirts, Ocean Pacific t-shirts, which Ocean I was Pacific happy to see near the uh, end. Aren't they great? Uh, yeah, I have so many. On what basis in the present did you did you decide to go for these very flagrant sexual Well, displays? I think, you know, we've been seeing a lot of ass cracks. Yeah. Uh, and we've also been seeing a lot of pubic bone, you know, uh, which to me is, is interesting. You know, I, you know, I'm walking down the streets and that's a lot of, that's a lot of intimacy right there, you know, and, and it's, it's amazing. Um, so, all satire, all... Um, you know, all kinds of fiction, uh, speculative fiction, is really about the present. You just take it up to 11. You know, so I thought, okay, we're seeing the pubic bone, let's just see the whole, the whole, the whole animal, you know, and uh, why not? I'm wondering if you consulted any present fashion to sort of see things like the onion skin jeans to with which to formulate a, a future. I, I went to some stores. Okay. I tried on some, some thongs. Okay. It was great. It was very yeah. good. More comfortable or no? It hurts in different places. Yeah. You know, there, there are pluses and minuses to the thumb. Yeah. Centering the weight must be really difficult. Okay. Yes, yes. You have a world here in which people are willing to reveal everything about themselves, yes. down to whether they like a reverse cowgirl position, to their history of sexual abuse, uh, their credit history. Uh, the only real strain of resistance we see is from the 1932 inspired bonus march in this. And I'm wondering why you don't have more of a resistance outside of compensation. I mean, it seems to me that that fiction, even satirical fiction, should have, I suppose, something else going on aside from, from, from a very austere streak which goes on. I mean, the American Restoration Authority isn't imposing authoritarian presence in this, but, but I'm wondering um, 
why you limited the the descent to the bonus marchers and to that uh, that the the revolts going well, on. Well, the other people are not starving, and that's the difference. Yeah. You know, uh, starvation is a huge motivation for actually doing something. Uh, but what I wanted to do was create a society where maybe similar to Fahrenheit 451. Uh, the, the standard people, the middle class, is actually pacified and satiated. There's enough. There's enough food. You know, there's enough food, and all that really matters is your 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 fuckability, the ranking which shows you how fuckable you are, the sustainability, of course, how much money you have and what your credit is, and personality, which is based on how introverted you are. I'm sorry, how extroverted you are. It's based on how much of yourself you reveal. Ooh, I was abused here. I was abused there. You know, this is all. All that helps to raise your score. Um, but for the most part, you know, uh, Winston in 1984 tries to break out of it. He tries to find the path. The path leads to torture. Uh, Lenny is no Winston. You know, Lenny wants to play by the rules. All my characters, uh, I think, are fairly complicit in the societies. This is sort of my innovation, whether it works or not. Uh, they are completely complicit in the world in which they live in. In my first book, the, the, the guy helps to fund the pyramid scheme to defraud rich Americans in Prague. In the second book, uh, Misha uh, co cooperates with this incredibly awful regime in a, in a country, not because he wants to kill people, but because he sees this as a way of getting the girl, getting ahead, getting a visa to New York, blah, 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 blah. And in this third book, too, you know, Lenny wants what everyone has, eternal life, what the very elite have, and a beautiful, caring girlfriend, which is a little bit harder, actually, than eter finding eternal life. And he will do whatever it takes to try to get those things. He's not going to... He's not going to march, he's not going to fight the power. If anything, Eunice is the one that emerges as somebody who is politicized. And her politicization is more based in the Christian faith in which she grew up, which she rejects uh, ostensibly, but in the end feels a kind of connection to as well. And to the idea, the idea that also runs through every one of my books, and this book especially, is the idea of family. That certain uh, immigrant families are too close for comfort, and also you can't pry them apart. You know, they, there's... In the end, that unit will matter more than the individual. Yeah. You know. But on the other hand, you have the Noah Weinberg show, uh, which I noticed carries similar subjects discuss things to some of the things I do, which was a little, dis a little disconcerting. I, I, I think I even not. talked about threads with somebody. So you I, did? You talked yeah, about threads? I think I did, yeah. I so. about threads day and night. It's, yeah. I watch it sometimes to fall asleep. You yeah. Know, that radioactive sheep, it kind of... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Life oh, just the, the childbirth at the end was terrible. Ah. I, yeah, I know. That's, that's terrible. But... but um, the big thing that they're writing upon is politics and humor. That's right. the one subject that constantly carries through the streams. And it's almost as if you're suggesting that political discourse in a bipartisan party system is, is kind of futile, and yet oh, people yeah. crave it. So, so I'm wondering if you, you say that Eunice is politicized, and she is, but on the other hand, is a political action to some degree? Is it well, what you're suggesting here in this particular dystopia? Isn't it kind of futile in the end? Yes, can, of yeah, course. Yeah. It's completely futile. Um, you know, we, we are all very politicized and we talk about politics quite a bit and it's a major part of our lives. And yet, the economy will continue to decline. Our country will continue to decline. These are things much larger than us, you know. They're even larger than our leaders, I would say. They're even larger than the bipartisans. I mean, what's at the center of this book also is the fact that inevitably a country like the United States is not going to continue being the top dog forever. Yeah. And as a country that's messianically obsessed with the idea that we are the major power and always will be and, and that it is God that has given us this power, which is not that different actually from the way Russians often conceive of themselves, you know, and the way that the Russian Orthodox Church has perpetuated the idea of, of, of a church-based state. Um, so, for them, the decline of America will be especially cruel. And what, what, will there be a soft landing is the question. You know, when I started writing this, 2006, 
I thought, well, you know, I'll start with the collapse of the banks. It's pretty, pretty unlikely. And then, the, and then maybe the car companies, because I remember driving around in a Chevy being like, no, this is not going to last much longer. Yeah. This is crap. Yeah. You know. Uh, but all, as I started writing this, especially when I moved to Vanze to, in you know, 2007 and then 2008, and it all started happening. I said, all right, I have to make this worse and worse and worse and worse. So I had to degrade it to the point where the whole country gets bought by a Norwegian hedge fund. You yeah. Know? And it's tough to write. I'm not a, you know, I like, I like this country. I, I, I own real estate here. You know, it's my, my barber is here. Um, I don't want it to collapse. But there's also a considerable, I think, fury underneath all the comedy and underneath all the sort the, the sweet love story. I mean, you know, I would argue that of the three books, this is probably your angriest. Angriest? Was, yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting. Well, you know, I think maybe that it feels more angry to people. And I, I've heard people say that um, because finally I'm dealing with a subject that people can really understand, you know, and a, an absurdistan, it's about some country God knows where. I mean, you know, you can sort of figure it out in the abstract. You can feel something maybe in the abstract, but for the most part, it's not Dwayne Reed that's on fire. Yeah. It's, it's something else. Yeah. And so this book, I think, hits home more with, with, a, with, a, with many more American people. And I wonder what the reaction will be abroad. You know, when, my, when Absurdistan came out in Russia, and that's very critical, obviously, of, of the post-Soviet world, and explicitly critical of Putin and, and that regime. Uh, you know, some of the reviews were, you know, balding traitor betrays motherland and that kind of stuff. So yeah. I want to see what the reaction would be to uh, something like this. Yeah, and Putin grad in, in this as well. Well, that's yeah. a very, you know... By comparison to the rest of it, Russia gets off pretty easy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You relied on Kurzweil's uh, The Singularity is Near as one of the influences My intern here. helped explain that to me. I ah. was like, what the hell? I don't, you know, I barely passed Stuyvesant High School. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask, I mean, surely if you have a government that is essentially curtailing human intelligence while simultaneously private industry is augmenting artificial intelligence, isn't that something of a singularity cheat? I'm wondering how, you know, I mean, I'm wondering what the nature of your research into singularity was and how it affected this book. Well, the singularity is very different from what I describe here. In, in singularity, the idea is, yeah. is almost religious. We're yeah. all downloaded into a giant mainframe. Um, to me, that is so ridiculous that I just wanted to stop it at trying to keep our life biologically, you know, trying to keep it going biologically. But that brings up all kinds of questions, you know. So if there's a very small elite that, that survives, or, you know, that survives forever, even as the rest of society disappears or begins to decline, how do they choose who's who? You know, how do they choose? And, and so Joshi has these mechanisms. Not, it's not just money that keeps you. You have, to have a, you have to believe in the vision, you know, not have children or not to have too many children. Not worry, you know, because when you have offsprings, that's a kind of immortality. And if you just focus on your own immortality, then you could be one of the few that's selfish enough to survive forever. So the, the whole idea is basically a kind of selfishness. Uh, and uh, of course, there is in the well. I'm not going to give away the ending, but you know yeah. there are there are problems on the road there, and I think there will be huge problems to ever uh, uh, realizing most of this. There will be life extension to it, uh, uh, you know, which I look forward to myself. Boy, it would be nice to live to be, you know, in my case, 53 would be a nice uh, nice round number to reach one day. It hasn't happened to anyone in my family, but you know. It's, uh, I'm wondering if post-human services is your answer to transhumanism, whether you looked into that to some degree. I did not. This, this did faith not. in merging one with the machines, it's kind of an offshoot of singularity. Oh, with merging ourselves with the machines. No, that's, uh, that, that, that's not where this book is about, I think. Um, it really is about this kind of selfish desire to, to live forever and loving one's personality so much that to see it disappear, is, is, is just the thought of it is tantamount to, to suicide. Well, there's also a line that uh, 
those who want to live forever will find a way of doing so. Uh, that's, in fact, the cornerstone of post-human philosophy uttered by Joshi. I'm wondering, this is why I, I wonder if, if, to what philosophy are you specifically responding? It could be Christianity, <laughs> you know. Those who desire to live forever yeah. will find a way of doing so. Or know. die trying. Well, you know, if you find Christ, theoretically, you, you will live forever in, in his kingdom. Yeah. I also wanted to point out that uh, Joshi's one-man show, Sins of the Mother, there was a Lifetime TV movie called oh, Sins God. of the Mother. I, I you can't write anything anymore without... <laughs> it's all been done. I, I give up. You know, just, <laughs> oh, really? I had no idea. Anyway. Oh, okay. Oh. But that's great. What was it about? Um, it was, I think, just uh, a wild mother, you know, going through wow. some sort of domestic trauma, that kind of thing. Um, All right. Well, let's let <laughs> let the lawsuit begin. Well, on on the science angle, you have wine essentially replaced with resveratrol, and resveratrol is actually used to expand the lifespan yeah. of yeast and prevent cancer in mice. Yes. Uh, yes. No. It's actually, I was just watching a movie where they use that. As a, oh, really? So it's Which movie? Um, the kids are all right. Oh yeah. You know. So, uh, no, you know, this is the thing about writing a novel, even set in the future. It's all happening so quickly that you have to, you know, oh God, I wish I had a blog instead of a novel because then I could just update it every goddamn, you know. Yeah. Resveratrol, okay, we've already discussed that. Let's move on, you know. But <laughs> this is the thing. This is why you can't write about the present anymore. The present doesn't exist. We live entirely in the future all the time. Right now, what we're talking about, pointless. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's gone. YouTube, you know, look at somebody like Tolstoy. You could write about 1812, 30, 40 years later, 50 years later, you know. A horse was a horse. A carriage was a carriage, yeah. you know. There may have been some nice new movements in carriage design, but you still knew what the hell you were talking about. Yeah. Nowadays, nothing exists for more than three seconds. Well, that's why William Gibson has increasingly moved to the past with his books. Yeah. You know, you know, the the past. The recent past. I hate the past. You hate the past. You don't like the idea of writing a historical novel, which essentially is what you're doing here, it sounds like. Well, you mean because it becomes historicized the moment I finish it? Because by the time you finish it, it's right. going to be over. Yeah, no, it's true, it's true. I mean, it's, uh, it's annoying, but I, I, I hate, you know, and I, I don't hate all historical novels. In fact, after World War II, I like them, you know. That's, that's, that's the kind of history I can sink my teeth into. Let's just say 1972, the year I was born. After that, I can sort of, I can emphasize. But if I want to read about the 19th century, so many great writers back then, why don't I just pick up one of those dudes, you know? Yeah. I also wanted to ask, going back to what we were talking about in terms of philosophy and, and the world we live in, during the rupture, Lenny writes, what if the violence was actually channeling our collective fear into a kind of momentary clarity? The clarity of being alive during conclusive times, the joy of being historically important by association. Uh, is it your conviction that it's going to take a rupture, a Kent State-like event with which to get people actuated out of their operat iPhone-like existence? Well, I remember, I mean, I think when, what, the moment I was sort of referencing in the back of my mind when I wrote that is 9-11, and I never write anything about 9-11 uh, in, in nonfiction or in any of my other fiction. I never allude to it, really. Uh, maybe in the end of Absurdistan it's alluded to that that's September 10th, but it's never mentioned what's going to happen next. Um, the moment I remember very clearly was that of incredible excitement. You know, I remember people, I was living in a little tenement not far from Ground Zero, and Everyone was knocking, you know, we were, we were all rushing up to the roof. Some people took some beers out. We were watching the towers collapse. These Israelis were going off about how now you Americans will see, you know, the, the, the. and, um, but everybody felt like there was this moment of incredible connection in being present in something very special. Yeah. My girlfriend at the time, I remember going to her house, walk, there was no subways or something, walking 50 blocks to Midtown. Um, and each block, each step, seeing people crying, everything 
you know, we were suddenly taken out of this world where we were just, you know, at this point we're sort of beta consumers of electronic information compared to where we are now. And God knows where we'll be three years from now. But at that point, that felt like it was the most important thing that could have happened to us. And although it was, there was a horror associated with it, there was also an incredible feeling of connection and feeling like finally, after all the, you know, the dullness of the Clinton era, where you know a blowjob was the biggest thing that had happened to this country, we we're finally involved in something historic the way our ancestors were, and you know yeah. things like World War II. But I mean, on the other hand, I have to point out, like you've probably seen this video of this 11-year-old who's being cyberbullied by 4chan. Did you hear about this? It's a huge thing right now. Uh, she's going by the name of Slaughter, and uh, and there's a video where her dad is shouting in the background, and it's it's really truly horrifying. I mean, surely, I think people would still value their privacy to some degree, or they would actually say, this is this is going way over the line, uh, harassing people, providing every bit of personal information. I mean, that's got to trump any seduction of technology. Who knows? Things happen so quickly. Our values are changing so quickly. I mean, one of the things that this book sort of doesn't state but maybe believes is that change is okay. Change is going to happen. You know, end of slavery was good. Uh, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, the, the dilution of all these things in states outside of Arizona, that's good, you know. But it's when change happens quicker than we're able to accommodate it. Because we are really flesh and bone and, you know, certain whatever's going on in our heads. There's, there's, there's only so much we can do. And when we're addicted to constant change, that's break, at a, changing at a breakneck speed, what happens when the change overruns us and begins to condition this group, this group mind that we have brought together begins to condition us more than we condition the group mind. That can be very depressing. I mean, you know, going back to, you could say that the television, people when television was, was, was revealed was uh, a, a similar worry. But what this does is a little more insidious. It takes away our privacy, for one thing, but it also deputizes all of us to be writers, filmmakers, musicians, which sounds lovely and democratic. But when anything, when a book be ceases to become a book, when a book becomes an, a Kindle application, when it becomes a file, how different is it in the mind of somebody from any other file that you get? Sitting there at your workstation, if you're a white-collar worker, all you do all day long is receive bits and bits of information. And in some ways, you know, you, you begin to privilege these bits of information. But in another way, one email is as good as another. You know, it's all just coming at you, streaming at you. You go home, what's the last thing you want to do? The last thing you want to do is pick up a hard brick like the one I'm holding right now, open it, and begin to read linear text for 330 pages. It's the last thing you want to do. Who the hell would want to do it? You know? And I think because America is such a market economy, there's still a love, a real love of storytelling. That's why you look at something like The Wire, The Sopranos, Mad Men. You know, what they've done is they've very cleverly, and they've talked about this, they've repurposed fiction the way it used to exist between covers in a way that can be transmitted inside an eyeball in a way that satisfies our, satisfies our, our, our craving for storytelling uh, but without, without all the added benefits that you get from a book. Mm. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, to some degree, by having jokes and by writing an entertaining book, which I think this is an entertaining book, Thank you. Uh, you are kind of contributing towards, you know, towards this entertainment oriented storytelling so at what point that's what right. makes you different huh well that's you you hit the nail on the head with your with your big hammer yeah. uh, I still believe that fiction is, is, is an entertain a form of entertainment I in my crazy world which may not exist I'm still hearing about a book that I have to read 
and I'm getting out of bed and I'm running to the bookstore and I'm buying it. You know, the way the way people run used to run to the Cineplex. You know, yeah. I'm still I'm excited, and that's what I want fiction to do. If it doesn't entertain me, then then it's work. You know, then it's just something. You know, when I when I was researching parts of this book, I had to read a lot of books that that were not entertaining. Yeah, and they were they were work. Um, what worries me is the academization of, of literature, where it becomes just an academic pursuit where we sit around, we create serious works that are then discussed by serious people in serious settings, and the entertainment value is nil, and we become a small, tiny society that's obsessed with things. In other words, we become where poetry is today, you know, uh, utterly irrelevant, um, with beyond a certain beautiful, wonderful circle of people. And, and what's, you know, the poetry hasn't gotten any worse. The poetry's great. Yeah. And the fiction hasn't gotten any worse. Some of it is amazing. Yeah. You know, but the way we approach these things has become too serious. Huh. Well, to what degree should books be work? I mean, I'd hate to live in a world in which Ulysses was banned simply because it was too, considered to be too much work. I find it a very marvelous journey to just sift into all those crazy phrases and all that language myself but it doesn't feel like work to me and I don't think it feels like work to everybody and we still have Bloomsbury and all I'm not talking about Ulysses I'm talking about you know uh, self-important crap Mm. Uh, like what well I'm not gonna say (laughs) 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 very convenient very convenient I'm not gonna say Um, Madame Bovary talk about a page turner and put that thing down I read it all the time Jesus Christ and I'm still part of me thinks oh no, no don't do it don't do it Madame B Stay away from that schmuck, you know, because it's so damn involving. It's yeah. uh, it's it's brilliant. It's funny as hell, you know, the apothecary and uh, there's so many elements in it that are working. It's it's perfectly researched. The language is just right. It doesn't, you know. I suppose it could be considered work, but it's not any more work than one needs to do in order to m- gain the maximum enjoyment and understanding of these characters. Yeah, you know? but isn't there some sort of compromise? Aren't you trading something away for this happy medium here, or this? Are, are we talking essentially to some degree about approaching li- books and literature as if it's like a middle brow medium, or? Oh, what, what does it mean, middle brow, low brow, high brow? You know. These brows, you know, <laughs> I raise my brow with those brows. Yeah, very bromidic. Yeah. All this bromidic stuff is, is, is I think, is, is nonsense. You know, what makes Jeffrey Genetti's or, or, or uh, Franzen's works, uh, so, so what makes them stay in our minds, you know? They use whatever language they want. If they need to deploy highfalutin language, they'll do it. If they need to use street slang, they'll do that. You know, there's, there's, the range is always there. Uh, and, and, and you try to capture in a world, a place and time, you try to capture it as best as you can with the best people you can deploy, the best characters you can deploy doing them. And to do that, you need to care about these people. Yeah. You know, and I, I tried, maybe I failed, but I certainly have tried with Lenny and Eunice more so than with anyone else. I've tried to live inside their skin. I tried to make myself fall feel the love, the reluctant love on Eunice's part, but feel the love that they both have toward each other in this very difficult world. And, you know, that doesn't sound highbrow, but to me it's the most important thing I can do with my art. But isn't the death of books, I mean, we've been saying the novel is dead for centuries. I mean, aren't we overstating the idea that, that books may not be read in the future? I mean, I went to a David Mitchell reading, you know, a couple nights ago. And it was standing room only. It was amazing. I haven't seen an author get that kind of reception, a literary author, in such a long time. I don't think books are entirely dead, even if some people prefer to read them on their digital sure. devices. So, I, no, books is, are not entirely dead. Philip Roth says they'll be dead in 15 years. So we have 15 years left. 15 years left. That's what's, what Philip what's, Roth says. What, what calculation? What's the formula here? I, I don't know. I, you have to talk to Mr. Roth about that. But he said this. Um, he said 15 years. Actually, he said that a few years ago. So I think we have 12 years left. So. Yeah. 
I'm writing like crazy because I know that I have 12 years left. You know, it's like a, it's like a terminal degree. You know, um, you're looking at me like you just got a diagnosis for cancer. <laughs> well, I think the analogy I would use more is like I'm sort of the the last Japanese soldier in one of those islands in the cave. You know, who hasn't heard that Hirohito has surrendered. Yeah. And I'm just still shooting away at the enemy, and nobody's told me that the war is over. And I can put down my typewriter and go home to my wife. But for a guy who believes very much in the idea of experiencing happiness in a fascist state, that's a very pessimistic viewpoint. I know, I know. I gotta get with the program. I gotta get happy in a fascist state. What does it take, you know? I'm spending, you know, maybe I'll get an internship in Zimbabwe or something and be like, hey guys, you happy? <laughs> I brought some food. Maybe we just need to bring more food to bookstores and feed people. Maybe they'll buy books. Maybe they'll understand so. them. Well, what I'm doing with my next book is I'm packaging it inside a knish. So the idea is you buy the knish, and then you're eating it, and you're like, oh, shit, there's a book in here. You know? You're like, well, it's free, I guess. Unless Came they start knish. eating the book by accident. Yeah, no, I know. We're going to have to isolate ourselves legally for that one. All right. Well, knish frame book seems a very good end for this conversation. But Gary, thanks so much for taking thanks the time Thanks so out. much. It's always great to see you. Good. Absolutely.